Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 215 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is Camille Seaman. Camille was born in 1969 to a Native American father and African American mother. Her photographs have been published in National Geographic magazine and countless other publications. They've also received many awards, including a National Geographic Award in 2006 and the Critical Mass Top Monograph Award in 2007. She is a TED Senior Fellow as well as a Stanford Knight Fellow. I was so fortunate to be able to get Camille onto the podcast to have such a rich conversation. Before we get started, I wanted to remind listeners that yesterday we opened up entries into the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. This unique landscape and nature photography competition was created to elevate and promote photographers and photography that adheres more to the natural presentation of nature. While we do allow some basic editing in the competition, such as adjustments to exposure, contrast, and color, we will be placing a large emphasis on our golden rule, which states that the integrity of the subject must be maintained. To learn more about our rules, you can head over to naturallandscapeawards.com forward slash rules. We are also looking forward to seeing your amazing submissions. Without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with Camille Seaman. All right, Camille Seaman, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited for for this show and just want to really dive into who you are and your your photography and your adventures and all of that. But, you know, uh, before we do that, um, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can get an idea of of who you are. Okay. So my name is Camille Seaman. I'm originally from Long Island in New York. I lived for 29 years in the Bay Area of California, and now I live on the west coast of rural County Clare, Ireland. I have been photographing in the polar regions, Arctic and Antarctic, since 1999, and that's what I'm most well known for, Uh, although a lot of uh, people also know my storm chasing work, um, so there's some of that as well. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I spent two weeks in Ireland back in 2005, and um, it sounds like you're near where I was. I spent most of my time. I was in Galway and Doolin. Yeah, uh, so that's just up the road from me. I'm about an hour south of Galway and an hour west of Limerick. Okay, awesome. Yeah, have you been to the Aran Islands? You know, uh, I was just looking at them because I can see them from our cliffs here. Uh, Yesterday, it was so clear. You could see them, and I... I was like, I, that's on my list this year. I will go. I've been living here for three years, so okay, it's time. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool spot. Um, I was blown away by like literally every like hundred feet, there's a stone wall. <laughs> yeah, a lot of <laughs> for, rocks. <laughs> I think for, for keeping sheep in or, and things like that. But it, it like you feel like you're, you went back in time a thousand years. Well, um, it's a pretty remarkable place historically. And those yeah. stones, of course, they tell a tale, many tales. Uh, here, I live on the Lupet Peninsula, and we have over 240 what are called ring forts or fairy rings. And uh, these are from the Iron Age. And it's what mm. people used to live in. And they're yeah. everywhere. 
So we have cliffs yeah. and stones and these fairy rings. So yeah, it is an amazing place. Yeah. Well, I think um, it would be really beneficial for our conversation and how it's hopefully going to unfold if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing, because I think um, one of the th- most interesting aspects of, of you as a photographer is your your background and and all of that. So if you could tell us about about that, that would be really great. Sure. So you know my my name is Seaman, even though I'm a woman, um, and it's it's Seaman because on Long Island, uh, where I'm from, I come from a small fishing or whaling tribe. We used to be a whaling tribe back. In, in older times, and uh, my my ancestors worked as seamen on the ships, and um, so the tribe is Shinnecock and Montauket. And if you look at a map of Long Island, it's the very far eastern tip of Long Island is the Montauk Point, and if you go just a little bit east from there it's Shinnecock Bay and Shinnecock Hills and if you're into golf you'll probably know about it because that's usually where the U.S. Open is from time to time and so coming from a tribe there you know the ocean is incredibly important in my my sense of the world I cannot live on a lake (laughs) I need an ocean and uh, that's part of what brought me here to Ireland actually but being raised as a Shinnecock, my grandfather in particular, because my mom is black and Italian. And so I was raised primarily by my dad's family on Long Island. And my grandfather took it very seriously that he wanted to educate us to know what it meant to be proper human beings. And for him, that meant us knowing, knowing with actual experience what how we are interconnected and interrelated to every everyone and everything that there is no such thing as separation from us and nature us and another person we are all literally related and that i didn't understand how unique it was that i was raised that way until i was much older and that it, it, of course, it, it affects the way that I move through the world and how I perceive things and definitely how I document with my camera, mm. how, how I am making photographs. I wish your grandpa would teach everyone in the world. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I feel like that's a huge piece of what's missing from humanity right now is that basic understanding that everything is connected and that you know, when you push one lever, it's going to have an, a snowball effect on all exactly. kinds of different things. Because of those interconnections and interrelations. And um, that is critical, especially right now in this moment uh, for us as a species. If we are going to have another 10 generations of children's, grandchildren's, you know, people we will never meet, we need to behave in a very different way now. And I am hoping, I don't know, I, I've been told that um, after, after looking at some of my iceberg images that people will never look at ice the same way again. And, and I mean, that gives me some hope, but 
again, it was so unusual and so unique for me to be raised that way that I didn't I didn't start speaking about it until, you know, I was in my 30s almost. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm really curious to learn about um, how your unique upbringing as a, you know, as a person of color and as an indigenous woman, how that influenced your photographic perspective and, and what you take interest in. So <clears throat> I think I should talk a little bit about how and when I decided to become a photographer. Great. And, and then all of those answers will be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> it's like magic. <laughs> like magic. Um, as, a, as a small child, I was the one they would hand. Do you remember those Kodak 110 Instamatic with the little cartridge cameras? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Are you old enough? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've read about them. <laughs> I've seen pictures. Yes. <laughs> uh, my family would hand that to me and say, let Camille make the photo because she doesn't cut off people's heads. <laughs> and and I did. I felt very comfortable from the age of five with this in my hands. The The bad part is I'm not in many photos of that period because I was actually making the photo. Oh, right. Um, but that's okay. And I thought growing up that everyone, you know, made photos that that it wasn't anything unique or particular. However, I had a special superpower, which was at the time drawing. I was always drawing. And that ability to draw got me into the Fame High School of Music and the Arts in New York City. And when I was there, uh, we were required to go to the museums in New York City and look at all the art, which was amazing to have access to that. And when I was 15, I I couldn't take it anymore with my mom. And, and, and my mom is a Roman Catholic. And I think I was just too bizarre and anomaly for her. She just didn't know what to do with my uniqueness. And it and it came off in a very harsh and sometimes emotionally abusive way. Hmm. And so I left. I, I just couldn't bear it anymore. And when I left home, I was literally sleeping on my friend's couches in order to stay in school. And their parents were really cool. They understood I, was a, I, was, I wasn't a bad kid. I just I was incredibly creative and liked to express that in like the color of my hair or the clothes that I wore. And um, one of the things that the school did was they put me in a program uh, because they recognized that I was at risk. And they gave me a nichromat film camera. This was way before digital. And they said, they taught me how to bulk load black and white film and process it in a wet dark room. And then they said, go out and photograph your experience. What was interesting about that wow. is they, they didn't give me the manual for the camera. They said, you have to figure that out. Yeah. And this was before the internet too. Right. Um, so lots of trial and error. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, now, even even now when I when I'm trying to teach people what it takes to be proficient as a photographer, I say you should be able to handle and adjust your camera without taking it away from your face and looking at it. You should do it, be able to do it by feel. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, all that time in 
my high school years of trial and error, it, it, it gave me that kind of um, muscle memory of where things are and how things operate on the camera. And, and then, um, again, because I thought everybody's a photographer, everyone makes photos, I didn't think it was unique or special. Mm. And I went off on my merry way through my life. And um, then 9-11 happened in 1999. And I was 29 years old. And because of my experience of, of um, being a photographer in New York City, I had with me always on my refrigerator a photo of the Brooklyn Bridge with the World Trade Center. And I also used to work, just side note, as a bike messenger in New York City. So I used oh. to deliver things to the World Trade Center all the time. Yeah. And this picture on my refrigerator when those buildings fell suddenly had a very different meaning. It it was, uh, and I should say, at that at the time that they fell, I was holding my almost, I guess she was almost two year old daughter in my arms, and and I remember thinking she will never know those buildings in the way that I had, except for in a photograph or a piece of film. Um, that something about that picture on my refrigerator and that these buildings didn't exist anymore made me understand the importance of that photograph, that, that it was proof that they had existed mm -hmm. in, in the same way that we have pictures of our grandparents or something. And even though I had had a camera with me all that time, I suddenly wanted to use my camera to, I, I remember saying, you know, what can I do to show that there's something beautiful about this life and this planet? And I remember feeling a little pathetic, like that I know how to make pretty pictures. That's, I can do that. Uh, so I lifted my camera with intention from that moment forward. And I want to be really clear, like, it wasn't like I was like, okay, I'm going to spend the next 20 years going to document climate change and chase during, I, I didn't have a plan or anything like that. It was very just based on intuition and intention and a lot of serendipity. And so, of course, I, when I, when that switch came on, I decided there was no way in the world I was going to go back to school for this. And instead, I phoned up photographers whose work I thought, I, you know, I was like, how did they do that? And one of the first people I called was Steve McCurry from National Geographic. And he said, well, I, specific, I should be specific. I wanted to know how he was able to make such soulful portraits with available natural light. And he said, well, you have to come to Tibet with me. So, oh my gosh. so off I went to Tibet. And I remember I brought with me five different formats of camera because I, you know, the switch had come on and I was ready. I had yeah. my large four by five, um, and, and I think it was an ebony uh, 45S. I had a, a panoramic camera. I had a, a Leica 35 millimeter. I had a Fuji four by five. I mean, I, it was crazy how much <laughs> I had with me. And he, he just, rolled his eyes at me. He was like, you are crazy. Why are you dragging all that stuff? And more importantly, he would, he would grab me. He would see me out there photographing people with my cameras in the bright blue light, uh, 
you know, harsh son. And he would yell at me, what, what the hell are you doing in this horrible light? And he would pull me into some alley and he'd say, he would say like, do you see how it's much softer? Uh, No harsh shadows. And he'd grab some poor Tibetan woman. He'd be like, do you see how nice the light is on her? And she, you know, she'd be wondering what the heck is happening. (laughs) What is this guy saying? (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, he reminded me the importance of having a sensitivity to quality of light. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he said, you know, if you're going to make photographs, you, if, if you're serious about it, you want them to hold weight past your lifetime. You know, other, otherwise, and, and I can attest to this, I, one of the jobs I had as a 21-year-old was at Urban Ore in Berkeley, California. And we would try and save items from going into landfill. And one of the most tragic things we would see was literally hundreds of photo albums, family photo albums. When someone had died, their their family wouldn't keep these albums. And it was literally thousands of photos that were going to go into landfill. Hmm. And And I realized, like, even if you're just photographing for your family, you should do a good job. Make it, make it compelling that they won't want to get rid of them. Yeah. And... So um, he reminded me, you know, that if you if you want to have longevity with your images, they they need not just a good subject, not just good composition, but critically they need this quality of light. And with that, uh, I I thought I was going to go off and be a people kind of culture photographer. I, you know, here we were in Tibet photographing people, and this you know very strange set of circumstances got me and landed me in the polar regions. And we can talk about that if you want, how that happened. Yeah. I would love to. to know. Yeah. Cause that's so, a quite a, quite a switch. Yeah. So, uh, I do, was very, very happy surfing and doing my indigenous beadwork. I do moccasins and all sorts of things like that. And, Doing beadwork was is like meditation. It's this, it's it's something that gives me great joy and fulfillment. And you know, you're creating something that is useful from nothing. And I thought that's what my life was going to be. And I was doing that. I was again 29, um, full time, six days a week, ten hours a day, just to fulfill orders. Uh, and I, I was successful. I was getting paid good money for it. Um, and then one morning I woke up and my wrist felt like it was on fire. Mm. And I went to the doctor and they said, you have decrovanes, tendonitis, and you have three options. You can rest it, you can do cortisone shots, or you can have surgery. And I was like, well, you know, before we go ballistic, let's just rest it. So while I was resting it, my my boyfriend at the time, he had to go to LA on a business trip. And he said, why don't you come with me? So we're sitting in Oakland airport, waiting for this one hour flight to LA. When the airline announces they've oversold their flight, and they will give a free round trip ticket to anyone who can wait just one hour for the next flight. And I was like, well, I don't need to go to LA that bad. I can wait. This is a free ticket. So I gave up my seat. And it turns out that it was Alaska Airlines. And before that moment, I 
I I'm honest. I had no ambition, intention, desire to go to Alaska. I was never one of those people who wanted to be cold or or had, you know, romantic ideas about the North Pole or anything like that. But here was this free ticket. And so I decided to use it to go to a place called Kotzebue. And I specifically chose Kotzebue because it's above the Arctic Circle, uh, located on the supposed Bering Land Bridge. And because my tribe, if you look at the map again of Long Island, we are so far towards the eastern tip, like the, the next stop is the Atlantic Ocean. You cannot go any further east. And with this idea that we had migrated across this Bering Land Bridge and then somehow made it all the way to the eastern tip of Long Island. I was curious about that that idea of movement. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I went to Kotzebue with a film camera tucked inside my parka and uh, decided I was going to walk out on the frozen sea ice and and see what that was like to have sort of do a reverse commute towards uh, Siberia, but with no actual intention of getting there. Just wanted to walk on the frozen ocean. Yeah, feel, but, feel the experience. Exactly. So I went there by myself and started walking out onto the ocean. And needless to say, I was not prepared. I had no food, no water, just this camera and walking out in minus 35 degrees on a frozen ocean in an area that I have no knowledge of and ended up in a situation where I realized I was way out of my depth and needed to turn around immediately (laughs) and head back for the town. And when I turned around to look for the town, it was gone. Like every, every direction was just white. And so, so that experience of walking on the frozen ocean in Alaska, I think I, I took my camera out of my parka twice um, because about minus 35, that's when your film can freeze and crack. Um, and yeah, I survived. It turned out that actually I was uh, pregnant on the ice as I was you know, having this experience. And when I got home, my mother-in-law, she said, she, I told her about my trip and she was like, you're so adventurous. And she was curious <laughs> about this, this thing that happened where I felt like for the first time in my life, I understood my grandfather's teachings mm. that I was made of the material of this earth and that I was standing on my rock in space, that I am an earthling. I am of this earth. It was really profound. So she went off to the actual geographic North Pole on a Russian nuclear powered ship and came back and she said, Oh my God, I felt it too. And she wanted to write a book about this experience. So she dragged us to a place called Svalbard. And I have to tell you, like, after that Alaska, Alaska experience, I felt like I was done. I had done cold and, you know, and this was before that photo switch had come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she took us to Svalbard, that switch had come on. So I took with me again all these formats of camera. And when we were there, it was so amazing that the, and in fact, one of the images, the first images I made that really showed me the power of photography I made in Svalbard with my four by five camera. And it ended up in the New Yorker magazine for a calendar. 
And someone wrote in and said, because of that image, I need to go there. And I was like, yeah. wow. You know, like my photo has inspired someone to get off the couch and go somewhere. Um, and so that was just a, a hint of what was possible. And as a thank you to my mother-in-law who paid for us to go to Svalbard, we decided to take her to Antarctica. And so when I went to Antarctica, this was after I had gone to Tibet with Steve and there were no people in Antarctica. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? And I decided again to listen to my grandfather's teachings, which was that we are all interconnected and interrelated. So I decided to photograph every everything, whether it was an iceberg or a penguin or a hut, as if I was making a portrait of one of my ancestors. And and I want to I want to just clarify because a lot of people misunderstand. I am not anthropomorphizing or humanizing this ice or penguin or I'm just merely acknowledge acknowledging its connection and relation to me. Mm-hmm. It is a relative in that sense. Um and so I started photographing these icebergs. I photographed everything. And when I came back uh, without my knowing that work got shown to a National Geographic editor and they gave me a National Geographic award because I, I, it wasn't like I was looking for assignments or anything. I was literally head down making work that I was curious about. Yeah. And uh, that's just set things in motion. That got me invited onto a Russian ship in the far side of Antarctica. And there I was offered a job on the ship as the expedition photographer. So then I was working in both the Arctic and Antarctic, just going back and forth for years as the expedition photographer on small um, tourist vessels, mostly that had scientists and, and were trying to inform people about the fragility of these areas and why, why we need to care about it, even though we don't live in these areas. I'm struck by the idea that that approach of just having your head down and um, capturing the things you felt connected to, that there's a there's a certain purity to that in terms of motivation and um, focus. And I'm curious if you've um, kept that style of approaching photography or if it's shifted over Very time. much so. Um, that's uh, Thank you for noticing that. I, I think... Many people who go into photography have this romantic idea of, you know, they have to become a photographer by following A step to B step to C step, and then they get there. And I think that's totally not true. Um, You have so many photographers trying to squeeze through a very limited amount of doors. And for me, uh, one of of the interesting things about just doing something that I was truly compulsively creative and and curious about um, when I when I met the editor for National Geographic. Uh, I was too shy to show them my work, even though I found out later they already had seen my work. And and um, he said, "Oh, oh, we know about you long before you." Yeah, you come to us, and they do. They they stalk. <laughs> they stalk me. You know, I I was 
I was never stingy about putting my work online. I know a lot of people feel like they have to have their signature on it and watermark and this. I never did that. I trusted that I knew my photographic voice and I knew that all roads lead to Rome or to the source. And I was the source. And um, I've never, I think I pitched my first Nat Geo story this year. And I've been published with them since 2007. Um, Awesome. Yeah. And and I'm not, I'm just saying like, I've been really lucky. Galleries, I've never gone to a gallery and said, will you show my work? They've always come to me. Um, Publishers came to me. And I think that that is really the way you want it. You you want you yeah you don't want to have to be chasing. Uh, it's it's and for me personally, it, it just wasn't how I move through the world. I uh, my joy is making the images, and then I understand that my my responsibility to wherever or whomever I have photographed is to get that work seen. It is it is in part of my initial in- intention to show that there's something beautiful and special about this life and this planet. I feel like because I'm giving given so many of these unique, special opportunities that I must respect and honor those unique opportunities by doing my utmost to, to get that work seen in, in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, uh, when, when I w- you asked me to do this, podcast I was a little like oh okay because it's funny people call me all sorts of things as far as photographer oh she's a environmental photographer oh she's a landscape photographer oh but the reality is like I I I never stop to say I'm going to be a landscape photographer I'm just taking pictures yeah exactly I'm just I'm just making images of things that I think the world should have awareness of. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I'm I'm curious, you know, given your given your background, um, what kind of challenges have you faced um, as an indigenous woman of color in relation to um, the the making of your photography? I'm curious if it's impacted your photography both positively and negatively. Well, you know, um, of course it has. Uh, first the first impact, I mean, think about it. The fact that as a young person, I didn't think this was available to me because there was no one that looked like me. There is, there is no, there was no precedent for, oh, you can do that. No one came to my school and said, Camille, you'd be perfect for that. You know, I just, that <laughs> you, you, and, and I think it's important to say this because, um, the reason, part of the reason there are so few people of color, women of color, as photographers and especially as like uh, nature or environment or landscape, it is because it is so male dominated. And, you know, for example, there'll be a conference about polar uh, issues, climate issues. Nine times out of ten, they will ask the men to present or speak, even though I know I have been doing longer or even 
actually inspired that specific person to go and document such and such. And it, I'm not, I'm not going to be a hater about it because the issue needs as much attention as possible. But the reality is that 50% of the planet is female. And female maybe even a little bit more. Maybe even a little bit more, right? <laughs> um, and, and yet the female perspective is so important, yet where, where do we – the percentage uh, – I'm, I'm sorry, I, I get – you can see I feel a little bit about oh, a bit of a way about this. There is an organization now called uh, Women Photograph, and um, this women have tried to put together a database to to present to publications to say for you know here's women that can do it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you might have that give that a look. Um, but they also you know spent time running down the stats to see what is the the statistics of women getting published doing the same kind of work, men getting published. It's frightening, frightening. Um, but being a person of color adds amplitudes more on that. One, uh, I think people try and say, well, you know, if you're not strong enough, personally, they'll say, well, what are you doing here? And and I've always got an answer for that. You know, uh, someone might not. Someone might feel intimidated or feel like not me to feel like they belong. I never needed to belong. And I think part of of being homeless as a 15-year-old in New York City, I have a very strong survival gene and I my my shell is is very hard. Um that's not to say that I'm not incredibly sensitive, but I don't take anything personally. Um and I know that for people of color, like we don't I definitely don't. There was so much dysfunction in my immediate family, my parents. I had no no one to support me, uh, you know, if I wanted a camera or if I wanted to go on a trip to this place or that. So all of that had to come later when I had my own means. Um, and in a way, I'm lucky because I'm fully aware that every experience that I had from 15 to 32 gave me the tools and preparation, the life experience that I would need in order to run a successful career as a photographer. And uh, I don't, I don't know that people who, who are starting out have that, that uh, wisdom. Um, I think other things that are challenging for women and people of color. Of course, let's talk for a second about just women. We, sure. Many of us want to be mothers. And depending on how you arrange that, you can have huge chunks of time out of your career. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. I just took my daughter with me. <laughs> I just, from the time she was two weeks old, strapped her on me and kept going all around the world. And it ended up a situation where she was on all seven continents before she was seven. Wow. Um, she's been in over 200 countries and she's just now 21. Um, so, but I, I just, I was committed to making that happen. Um, and I also recognized that I didn't want to be a mom that was like, Oh no, honey, I'll stay home. And you know, 
to your kids. You go and live your dream, but I had to sacrifice. And, and the reality is our children do not as we tell them, but as we show them. We must lead by example. And I wanted my daughter to know that uh, I am happy, I'm fulfilled. I'm not trying to push my life desires onto her. I'm not saying, oh, I need you to be a doctor or a lawyer or fulfill something that I didn't because I'm I'm blissfully happy in doing the things that I do. And yes, they are challenging. Uh, I've had moments where I felt incredible guilt, like being away from my child for a month or two at a time while I'm on ship somewhere. But what I always say, and it's true, I honor her sacrifice by doing the best work that I can when I'm there in the moment. I'm not, I'm not just tossing it away. Uh, and so I think, you know, motherhood is a, a big part of the, of the issue for women. And then being a person of color, really not having people that look like you doing it. Representation is really important. Yeah. And I know a lot of people won't really understand what that means unless they they've understood how important it was to see somebody that looked like them and they go wow they're doing it i i my daughter's really into uh formula one racing she okay yeah and she was like mom in another life she's like it's too late for me now because you know they have to like do it from the age of five but she really likes to follow formula one and and of course lewis hamilton who's like the seven-time champion is a black man. And how important is that for other young kids to say, yes, that I, there's, that's something I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have to say, I'll be honest, I didn't ever want to be known as a, a woman photographer, and I didn't ever want to be known as a Native American photographer. Sure. Because those are two things that you could very quickly get boxed into. And then next thing you know, that's all you are. Right. And so for a huge chunk of what I was doing, I was just Camille Seaman making photos. And then I went, I was really fortunate to be invited to National Geographic has this thing for all their contributing photographers party every year. I thought I was in like Flynn. Wow, I got an invitation. And I went to DC to this party. And in this room of over 300 people, I could count on one hand the people of color. And I could count on maybe four or five hands the photographers that were female. And I thought, why is this? And I realized that it's because there are people like me that don't say anything. And so I started to go around, because I do, I, I get asked to speak at schools, everything from grade school all the way up to university. And so when I would go to schools, I would make it very... I kind of came out <laughs> as female and, and indigenous and I, I made it known, you know, this was my story. I came from a very hard place, homeless and quite dysfunctional and poor family. And yet look at the life and things I've been able to do. And so um, I, I have, I know now that it, it makes a difference. I feel those people when I'm at the school, they come up to me afterwards and like, it's something I really wanted to do, but I didn't know if it was something I could do. Yes, 
Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I've, I've, I've had conversations with other women who are like, I don't want to be known as a you know female photographer or a female landscape photographer. And there's kind of a interesting bifurcation there where on one hand, if you own it and champion it, you, you could actually make a difference in other women's lives. But on the other hand, if if you if you do that, you can also be, you know, put into a box like you were saying before. So I think it's that's a unique challenge that you know men and especially white men don't have to think about. I know. I would love to be like I'm a white male photographer. Right? Like who cares? I should buy that. <laughs> Pass, passing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious too, though. You know, your 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 perspective from from you know being indigenous and a woman. Have you found there to be ways in which that perspective um, gives you some advantages that perhaps someone like myself, who's white male, doesn't have? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of cliche, but y- you know, one of the, one of the things that makes it possible to get in, especially cultural situations, uh, it can be very intimidating to have a, a white man there. But I'm just a woman. <laughs> I'm just a woman. <laughs> and uh, I'm just like them. And so so I'm not I'm not as scary. I'm not as imposing sometimes. Uh, as as I know it, it might be to be like a, a big white guy coming into the situation. Right, um, like why, what does this guy want from me? Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I know I've, for example, in Tibet, in I was in the in the Darien Gap with the Embera people um, in the jungle, uh, up in the Inupia and in Inuit cultures up in Canada and Alaska and Greenland. Um, also, just across the United States, I had a project where I was going from reservation to reservation, photographing other indigenous tribe, tribal people. And I know that made a huge difference that, you know, oh, finally, one of us. <laughs> you know? Right. Please take my yeah, picture. Those, those are the kind of projects that I would love to do, but I would feel very uncomfortable the entire time. And rightfully so, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, again, it's about intention and perception. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, I'm curious, what should aspiring photographers do uh, to make stronger work? Because you've been, you know, recognized by editors at Nat Geo and, you know, it seems like part of, part of the magic formula is not having extraneous uh, motivation, but I want to hear more about some other tips you might have for people that are trying to make better images. Yes. Uh, quite often I get asked to speak to aspiring photographers. And one of the main things that drives me pretty nuts is if you ask, if you were to ask them, where do they see their work? Where do they want their work to be? They cannot answer. And so for an aspiring photographer, I would say, spend the time and think about where do you want your work to be? Where, hmm. Whether that's the Guggenheim or, you know, Sports Illustrated. No, have an idea that this is 
This is your place. This is where you want to go. It seems like so many photographers I come across, they they have a very um, almost desperate feel of like, I just, I just want to get published. But why? What is your intention? And so um, my, again, my intention when that switch came on was to show that there was something beautiful about this life and this planet. So I think photographers should understand what is their intention. Is it, is it an ego thing? You just want to be known as, you know, the guy who photographs that thing or, or do you, do you have something you want to share? And what is that thing? And something you want to say. Yeah, something you want to say. Uh, and then the third thing I would say for aspiring photographers is that there is a Steve McCurry already. There is a Camille Seaman already. Magazines, galleries, they don't want to see you do great copies of that work. They want to see the world through your unique eyes in a way that they have never seen it before. And I, I, I'm asked to be a judge on a lot of photo competitions. And there's a lot of stunning, good photos, technically fantastic, really well executed, but I've seen it before. And I know that they're just trying to do like Paul Nicklin or, you know, they're just copying another photographer's images and thinking that that is what makes a good photograph. And, and it's not. The, the key here is to spend time figuring out how you see the world in a way that nobody else does. And for me, the way that I did that is this was back in the days of one-hour photo labs. <laughs> and you can still do this. Um, yeah. Print out four by six images of your work and either put them on a wall. I had them on walls in each room. I had them on tables. And as I would walk by, I would go and i say, that's not me. And I'd pull it down, process it. No, that's not me. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, you're like, yes, those, that's, those are the images I, I wanted to make that I meant to make. And that's me. And so then, uh, you pick up the stack of the ones that weren't you and you spend the time to say, why are they not you? What is it about them that is not what that's, you have <laughs> No, that's very interesting because I, I've heard of that approach, but like the opposite way, you know, spending the time to focus on the ones that you do like and asking, why do I like these? But I actually kind of like the opposite of that is um, really trying to hone in on what you don't like about the other images and why they're not you, because I think that'll help you avoid creating similar work. Absolutely. Um, there, I'm blanking on his name right now. Martin, uh, British photographer. Really cynical. Uh, Mar Martin Bailey. No, this this is he's kind of like a people photographer. I'll I'll remember it when we are finished. Okay. I'm sure. Anyway, I mean British a British photographer is cynical. You basically just that's like <laughs> all of them. Yes. No, but I'm there just was kidding. I have lots of people from the UK that are friends. So I'm just something about his images that was like wearing a really itchy sweater. Like for me, it just really I was like, and and yet. At the same time, I had to acknowledge he made me feel like so irritated. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to make it like his. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a response. Exactly. It doesn't always have to be a positive response. Exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, so, I, I actually really like work that makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's like I said, it's really good to know who you are not as much as who you are and why. Yeah, the, it's funny because you kind of already started and most maybe already fully answered the next question I was going to ask. But it, as you were talking about um, this idea of intention, and I really want to drive home that that piece because I think it's really important for people to think about intention if their goal is to have their work uh, stand out in any way. You know, I don't think, interestingly, I don't know that everyone has that goal. You know, I think some people are just fine, you know, running around and, you know, capturing the same images that they saw other people do. And there's nothing and, wrong with that. And there, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think it, if, you, if, if you're finding yourself wanting your work to be more than that, um, I like this idea of asking yourself, what do you want to say? But I think a lot of people, and I can speak only maybe only for myself, but a lot of people struggle with the that the process of finding that place within themselves. Like how do like how do I find the answer to that question? And I know you talked about this process of, you know, putting photos on the wall, but I'm curious if there are other things that have worked for you in terms of helping answer that question for yourself. Yes. Um I th I think there's there's a story I want to tell about my first ever exhibition. And before that moment, I had never shown any of my photographs anywhere, not like on a cafe wall, nowhere. And um my friends were like, "Oh, you should take it down to the cafe. They, you know, they'll put it up." And I was like, and I said, I said, "No, I don't see it there." And they're like, "Well, you, you have to work your way up." You know, you can't you can't just you know suddenly get represented by a fancy gallery or you you have to work your way up. Cafe, you have to put it in a cafe. And I was like, no, I don't see my work there. And it was very strange because on many levels they're probably right, but for me I was like, no. And it was very strange because I had this very clear picture in my mind that my work was on these walls in a place that had white marble floors. That's pretty specific. <laughs> very specific. And and I was like, well, I, I you know, I guess I'll just won't ever get it shown. And strangely, I got a phone call from a curator of a museum in Washington, D.C. And he said, I'd like to fly out to your studio. And I was like, I have a studio? <laughs> You're like, I have a house that I live in. <laughs> That's how I am, right? And he, he flew out and he said right there on the spot, I'd like to offer you a solo exhibition in our museum. And I was like, but I've never shown my work anywhere, not, not even in a gallery. And he's like, this is important work. It needs to be seen. And so... It was like it was like hitting a home run the first time you go up to bat. And when I arrived in DC months later to the exhibit, it was white marble floors inside the National Academy of Sciences Museum wow. across from the, the Lincoln Memorial. And I I think, you know, the knowing, just knowing that that's where I saw my work helped to make that possible. And I I tried to not just for photography, but I raised my daughter not to make plans, but to make goals. So if your goal is to be in, for example, have your work published in National Geographic, then 
it becomes very simple yes or no answers. Is this going to get me into National Geographic? Yes, great, keep going that way. No, don't go that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that's so vitally important is to understand that you only have one soul and you must be true to yourself. You must know yourself in order to be true to yourself. I had a magazine approach me and they're like, oh, we want to use one of your uh, photos on the cover. Oh, great, a cover. That's fantastic. Oh, the fee. Yeah, that looks great. And can I ask, what's the magazine? And they named a magazine. And I was like, you know, I'm really sorry. That's not within my values. I'm going to have to decline. Mm. And and it's it's because I I know that my work means that thing to me. I know myself. And I know that I would not feel comfortable having people associate my image with that particular subject or magazine. And I think it's that kind of taking the time to figure out. That's why it's so critically important to know where do you see your work so that you can very easily say yes and no as, as these opportunities arise. I think what you're saying is really important because, you know, as as we're developing as photographers and, you know, as human beings, we we want to be liked. We want our photos to be liked. We appreciate it when they get attention, even if it's from places that you're unexpecting or maybe it's somewhere where you're like, oh, I don't really like what you stand behind, but thanks for liking my stuff. I think it's um, it's hard to know when to say no, but I like this framework you've provided of just asking yourself, does this path get me closer to my goal? And if the answer is no, then simply just decline. And I think exactly. that's I think that's beautiful. Yeah, and, it's and really and hard for some people though. Well, because they're not clear about what their intention is. Like that, that's when it's just I'm just desperate and I want to be I want to be a photographer for any purpose what whatsoever. And and for me personally, having a an intention and a knowledge of that intention makes it so much easier for me to stay true to myself and do work that I feel good about and see my work in places that I feel good about. Mm. Um, and also, like I said, I so lucky that people find me and, and it's probably because I'm not looking for them, <laughs> you know? Um, and again, it's, there are so few doors that so many people are trying to squeeze through. Um, and because I do judge a lot of photo competitions, I tell people who are entering when, you know, as a photographer, if you are serious about creating a career as a photographer, you should only enter a photo competition where you say, oh, that's the curator for the Smithsonian. I want my work in the Smithsonian. Or, oh, that's the editor for New York Times. I want my work in the New York Times. Because it is a way for you to get your work in front of their eyes. That's the only reason you should enter a competition, not even to win. I, I never entered any competition with the expressed desire to win. I entered it as a means of getting my work seen by someone that might not see it. And again, if you've done steps where you you know your voice and it's unique and you're doing the work because it's it's what you feel compelled to do, you will be seen and you will find your way. If you are not creating knockoff work uh, or um, or doing something to try and, and 
just get noticed, it it is seen. And and they will find you and want to work with you and expose your work. Uh, and I think that that's really important. So many people, why, why would you enter a competition? Because you think your photo is the best? I can tell you, having judged Nat Geo photo competitions, over 10,000 amazing entries from all over the world, and you get one chance. You you need to not only be technically good, but you need to show me something I haven't seen before. Right. Yeah, that's tough. But it's a good that's good advice. Maybe this whole conversation is kind of about being more mindful as a photographer. Mm-hmm. Mindful as a, as an image maker. One of the great things I was able to participate in was called the Eddie Adams Workshop. And I was quite old. I was 36 when I did that. And there were people there who were like 18. And the Eddie Adams Workshop is for photographers who show promise and it's an opportunity for them to work. They take 100 photographers for a weekend to upstate New York, to Eddie Adams Farm, actually. And Eddie Adams was the photographer who made famous some Vietnam pictures. Um, and they break them into 10 teams. There's the Nat Geo team. There's the Reuters team. There's the Sports Illustrated. And you work with a editor and a photographer from those, uh, pl- those teams. Wow. And yeah, so I, and of course they put me uh, on the AP team and I was like looking over at Nat Geo like but I belong there. <laughs> but I did I learned a lot on the AP team and it was a valuable experience. But my my point about bringing up the whole Eddie Adams workshop is one of the things that was invaluable at that workshop was they it was like it was like an initiation into understanding that your images have power. And you may not be able to control the life that your image has once you release it to the public. And for example, they had um, Rosenthal's daughter. And Rosenthal was the guy who did the Iwo Jima raising of the flag image. And she talked about how not only that image affecting her dad's life, but her life. And they had the woman... um, it was a Vietnam image of a napalming and a young girl running down the road naked. They had that woman there as an adult oh, wow. to talk about how that image impacted her life. Yeah. So you're made to understand that this this thing that you did in a hundredth of a second or you know, however long your exposure was, it will resonate ripples in time. And you must be mindful. And that's, I think, why I've been talking about intention and your soul and you know your voice is because there is power in all of it. Mm, beautiful. Uh, well, one of the things that you said uh, just now, and also something I caught myself saying, and it's just a dirty habit, but you know, there's certain language that we use as photographers, like shoot, and uh, earlier I said take photos, and. One of the things I'm trying to do is to use the term make images more. Uh, I, I find it more in line with, you know, art. But I'm curious for you, what is the importance of, of this type of language? And, and what language do you suggest we should use instead? As, as an English speaker, 
and and I, I know you're going to get comments about this, but English is a language of possession. Hmm. And, and it ownership. totally is. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apostrophes it, 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 and yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's ubiquitous. This, I, I made a YouTube video actually about why do we say shoot? And it, it arose when, the, in the early days of photography, when they were using these artificial flashes and they would have to light the flash and it would make this pop sound, which mm-hmm. sounded a lot like a gun firing, hence the word shot mm-hmm. and shoot. And what's amazing is how that stuck. That mm-hmm. is, that's, it's very challenging to find any other kind of grammar or language around photography. And so just like you, I prefer to say make an image versus take. As an indigenous person, we've been captured. We've been shot. You know, uh, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to capture. I don't want to take. Uh, those are very, we, we have to be mindful of this right now, especially in America, that as as we are really dealing with our legacy, our heritage, that the language matters. And so for myself personally, I prefer to make an image. And when I'm making it, making an image, it is a, a collaboration. I prefer to make an image because when I'm making an image, I'm collaborating with my subject. Uh, they are giving me something and I am working with that instead of me feeling like I'm taking. And you, many photographers, you feel this, especially when you're in, you know, another country and, and, you know, I've never given anyone for money for a photo. And part of, part of that is because I carry with me always a portable printer and I print them the image and many of them have never seen their own image or or been given the photo. It's I, I can't tell you how many workshops I've seen where people uh, take a photo and then walk away. They don't even try and show the back of the camera to the child or the person. It's that's taking. That's truly. And then there, there the, people are like, well, what what is what was that? I try to when I'm um, making photographs. In a, in a culture or society like that, I try and have it be a way to, to begin a relationship. Uh, and I, nine times out of 10, I end up in their house or invited back to come stay with them. Or it's, it's not just taking. Mm-hmm. Or I, like, sort of- I like what you said about developing a relationship. I mean, even if our subjects are, you know, natural uh, whether it be rocks or leaves or trees or mountains or rivers or whatever. Um, I think using that language as a framework can shift how we uh, have a relationship and our interplay with that subject. And I think I, I'm, I can't necessarily speak for everyone. Maybe you could speak to this, but I think it might change the way in which it might change the end product in terms of what you're creating. Yes, when I am teaching photo workshops, uh, I have this this ritual where I do not allow any of the participants to use their camera for the first thirty minutes, and this actually comes from an old surfing habit and my grandfather. Two separate things marry together. When you go surfing, 
You don't just rush out into the ocean with your board. You sit and watch the ocean. You pay attention to the rhythm of the sets and the waves. And then you find the timing. You find your way in. And yes, I go in now. This is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And something that um, my grandfather had me do as a small child was every day after school, whether it was raining, snow, sun, hot, cold, didn't matter. I was made to sit outside for an hour. And I was not allowed to move more than the distance of my arms. And after an hour, he would call me into the house and he would say, what did you see? And if I was feeling stubborn, I would be like, I didn't see anything, Grandpa. We'll go back outside. But what's amazing is when you are still for that time, this, this, this film, this flimsy, false film of separateness dissolves. And you are again back in nature. You, you are, and nature goes, ah, you're back. And suddenly strange things happen. An- animals will come closer. We, you know, you're like, how did that happen? It was like magic. It's not magic. It's just the fact that you became present again in your, in your natural way. Instead of feeling separate from nature, you allowed that barrier to er- erode, to dissolve. And so, so you're absolutely right. Like when you are in that situation, you can make amazing images because you've lost that that separateness, that, that thing that makes you feel somehow isolated or outside of this thing or place that you are photographing. And and so making, if you if if there was a verb, well, I am very comfortable using photograph as a noun and photograph as a verb. I don't need to say shot. Uh, that's a nice shot. No, that's a nice image. That's a nice photograph. That that works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I've increasingly found that, uh, or at least I've gathered the perception that there are an increasing number of people out there that see nature as a commodity that can be um, harvested for their yeah resource. Yeah. I have a at, real problem with that word resource. <laughs> that's at that's at their disposal. That you know, I'm gonna go get my shot at that place, um, and I I I understand that from to cert, to a certain degree, just because you know in the United States we're so influenced by capitalism and and all of that. However, I think that that is a very poisonous approach to engaging. With our subject, and I, I like what you said a lot about developing a relationship, and it will speak back to you. Oh, it gives and gives in ways that you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. It becomes it becomes like magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, so I have one more question for you. You know, going back to what we were talking about in terms of the industry status quo being white males. What what can the industry do, if anything, to prevent that domination of the genre? What what are things that we can actively do to to to, to shift that? That's a great question. I would I would. There's two ways to go with that. One is, you know, like these databases, like Women Photograph, where they can they can say they oh I didn't know. Well now you know. Go to Women Photograph and look at the database and see if there's a female photographer who whose work resonates more with the assignment that you have in mind. Uh, just same thing for 
um, speaking things. If, if you have a panel of photographers speaking on a subject, make sure they're equal representation. It's not that hard. Um, male, female, person of color, it's not that hard. Uh, I know that it can be challenging to find people of color. That would be a great database uh, as photographers. That's a little bit more challenging. And again, it's partly challenging because, you know, the, the, there's expense. There's, there's a lot of money and uh, you, you may not have had the support. Like there's another group called Indigenous F photograph and um, they have a great Instagram. You can see the kind of work they're doing. I know that there's just a handful of us now, but that will grow as other indigenous photographers see it and go, oh yeah, I'm of that caliber. I should put my name on that list. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's been my challenge is discovering because yeah. it, it's not without effort. I mean, I, yeah. I, um, there's another podcast host who does a lot of street photography, but he has a wonderful podcast called The Candid Frame. Um, his name's Iberio Nex Perello, and and he's an African American. I think he's from Dominican Republic. Uh, but I was asking him, do you know? Do you have a list of African American landscape and nature photographers? He's like, I know none, <laughs> exactly. and I know a couple, but I mean, it it's very difficult to discover these individuals. It is, and. And part of part of that re reality is is that there aren't that many of us that can do it uh, for many reasons. You know, the the gear alone is so expensive. Right. Uh, being able to travel and say yes to things, drop everything. It, you know, not everybody is set up that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I would say resources is a huge problem. It would be nice to see more. Um, maybe competitions that are looking for that hmm. that kind of work mm -hmm. so that we can draw them out yes yeah. I love that alright well wrapping up I'm curious who would you recommend our listeners uh, learn about uh, for future episodes or just um, checking out their work in general yeah and here, here's the irony I'm going to give you two male names and one female <laughs> uh <laughs> The, the first one is the the man who actually inspired me to want to make beautiful work, poignant work, and that is Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky. Mm -hmm. His work, he's he's literally dedicated his life to documenting what humans have done to the planet, to the landscape, but done it in such a compelling, stunning, beautiful way that you cannot look away. Yeah. So if you can get Edward, he's ve he's very approachable, which I like. Uh, he's 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 not a egotist, um, and you yeah you c should get him on there. Really? The second one is Shane McGuire. Um, she's actually uh, an older woman like me. Uh, she's done work all over the world, and I know right now she's just taking care of her horses because we can't really travel. Um, but her work, there's something very sharp about it. And I don't just mean the focus. Like there's, She's very precise in her, her moments that she chooses. Mm. And then the last person I would recommend is, is one of the most soulful photographers and important photographers, I think, of our lifetime, up there with Edward, 
and his name is Chris Jordan. And Chris Jordan, had, he's truly an artist. When you look at his work, you'll see he has, for example, a project called Running the Numbers, where he talks about consumerism, and he uses photography in very unique ways in order to get that point across. And I then love he that. has yeah, and then he has another um, more recent project that he did called Midway or Albatross. I can't remember what he named it. But uh, basically, he spent time on the Midway Island documenting albatross that wh- whose bellies were full of plastic because the birds see the plastic and then feed it to their chicks. And so these chicks literally starve to death. But again, he did it in such a beautiful, compelling way that you cannot look away. Hmm. So, and he, I know he just, he's in Chile, so that's close to your time zone. Uh, but he's, he's just moved there in the last two years. And the work he's doing down there is really, because he does very big, um, what is that called when you use like a thousand exposures to make a, an ex, you know, one picture? Oh, like a gigapixel? A giga, yeah. So yeah. he's doing he's doing that multiplied with exposure. So I know he's done some stuff of, of of volcanoes and moon rises right now, but it's all like whoa, you know, when you when when you know that he's printing these, you know, twelve feet by fifteen feet or whatever, it's right. like whoa, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Camille, this has been a wonderful chat. Thank you, Matt. I enjoyed I, it too. <laughs> I am so thankful that that you could take the time to join me. Yes, yeah. I, I, yeah. I hope that you have fun processing all this. <laughs> Absolutely, and, uh, not a problem yeah. at all. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, thanks again to Camille for joining me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed learning about your upbringing and how you were able to find such powerful intention and purpose with your work. I find the idea of intention to be such a profound one as a photographer, and I encourage all of us to try to think about what our intention is behind our work. Who knows, it may change the way you approach the art form altogether. I would like to take a moment to thank our latest patrons over on Patreon for supporting the podcast or for increasing their pledge. Thanks to Alex Noriega, Colleen Minnick, Michael Torkildson, David Connor, Craig Stansel, Bonnie Lampley, Siegfriedo Zimmerman, and Atli Arnerson for your generous support of the show on Patreon. It is through the support of wonderful people like you that I'm able to keep the show running week in and week out. If you recognize these individuals, tell them thank you. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.